So we're continuing our series, God's Story, Our Story, by looking this morning at Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And it's in Genesis chapter 4 that we see the and read about the story of Cain and Abel. And it's the story that we'll read this morning that is the worst case scenario Everything we feared in Genesis chapter 3, everything we feared that would happen as a result of the fall and our first parents' disobedience to God, our first worst fears are realized in Genesis chapter 4. It's the story, Genesis chapter 4, of two families Remember in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see the creation and the establishment of one family, but it's in Genesis chapter 4 that we see the story of two families. So let's read this passage together. Genesis chapter 4, the fallout and the aftermath of Genesis chapter 3. But first, I just want to read one verse from last week, and then we'll look to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel brought the firstborn of the flock and of their fat portions. Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain, his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what we're reading here? You remember in Genesis 1 and 2, what did God keep saying? Everything is good. Everything is good. It is very good. And now all of a sudden we have brother killing brother. Just one chapter later, let that sink in. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. The family you're in makes all the difference in the world. The family that you belong to makes all the difference in the world. Your family, whether you realize it or not, matters. 
In Genesis 1 and 2, we see, as I said in the introduction, we see the creation of one family. God creates and establishes one family. And now in Genesis chapter 4, we see two families being established. But we shouldn't be surprised because Pastor Sam preached last week and we reiterated and went back to the verse this week. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, in light of the fall, what happens? God says there's now going to be two families. There's going to be one seed, the seed of the woman the seed that would eventually come into this world, but there would also be the seed of the serpent, the seed of those who belong to the kingdom of the darkness, the, those that belong to those that would oppose God and oppose His word and oppose His mission and oppose His people. And so we shouldn't be surprised in Genesis chapter 4 that we see two boys born that are totally antagonistic, opposed to each other, one that would follow the will of God, one that would be approved by God, and one who would oppose God and oppose the people of God. So in Genesis chapter 4, what we're seeing is the promise of God unfolding, that there truly would be two seeds, one seed that loved God and a seed that opposed God and hated God. And we see these two seeds manifest in the birth of Cain and Abel. You see, what we see here in Genesis chapter 4 are two families. The promise manifest that God would bring two seeds into the world, one that loved him and one that hated him, one that was for God and one that was opposed to God. And it's in verses 1 through 10 that we see these two seeds, we see these two families distinguished from each other. How does God distinguish these two families and these two seeds? A family that would love him and a family that would oppose him manifest in the creation and the birth of Cain and Abel. The first way that these two families or these two seeds are distinguished is by grace. They are distinguished by grace. Cain and Abel's lives, the, the reason they can be distinguished from each other is because of the grace that one receives and the grace that the other one does not receive. It says in verses 2 through 5 that Cain and Abel are asked to bring an offering to God. In this way, Cain and Abel are treated like priests and they go to God and they bring their offering to God. And they bring an offering based off of their profession. We're told in chapter 4 that Abel is a shepherd. He's a keeper of the flock. And we're told that Cain is a farmer, a keeper of the ground. And so they bring an offering based off of their profession. Abel brings what? He brings an animal sacrifice. He brings the fatted portion. He brings the first portion of the fatted portion of his stock. Which means what? Which means Abel brings the best. But Cain thinks he brings the best as well. He brings more than likely the first fruits of his crop. 
And so they both bring their offering to God. But it tells us, the passage tells us, that one of the offerings is accepted and one of the offerings is rejected. Why? Was it the nature of their offering? Was it, the, was it their profession? What exactly was it that caused God to go yes to one offering, it's approved, and no to the off- other offering, and it's rejected? Was it the offering itself? Was it their profession that God liked farmers and shepherds better than, or, or that he liked shepherds better than farmers? What exactly was it? What was it about the offering that caused God to accept one and not the other? Well, we have to understand the nature of offering in the Old Testament. Offering in the Old Testament was what? It was an act of worship. And the whole reason that we continue offering in the context of worship in the New Testament church is because this has always been for the people of God. One of the things that we do in worship is that we present our offerings. Now, we don't bring our fatted portions and our first fruits and our crops. We have a different, um, different means and ways of presenting our offerings to God. But the people of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, as an act of worship, always brought their offering to God. It was an act of worship. So what does that tell us about the offering? That it wasn't the nature of their offering, the quality of their offering, the quantity of their offering. It wasn't their profession. It was what? If offering is always connected to worship, then God had to what? He had to look at their heart. How do we know this? Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, and we have this verse, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, though he died, he still speaks. Keep that verse up there. What was the reason? Not because of anything Abel had done, but because of faith. It was the condition of his heart that God accepted his sacrifice, that God accepted his offering. It wasn't because he looked at one offering over the other offering. He said, I like that one better than that one. He looked at the heart, which tells us what? That our offering and therefore our worship is never disconnected from the worshiper. The worshiper and the worship is always connected. And we'll see this theme all throughout the Bible, where God will say, I am weary of your worship. Why? Because you don't sing well? No. He says, I'm weary of your worship because it's done with your mouth and not with your heart. And so the whole reason, please understand this, why Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's offering rejected was because God looked at the condition of their heart and said one is done through faith and one is done through obligation. And that should convict you this morning. That when we give and when we give of ourselves and when we worship on Sunday morning and when we sing and when we come together in the worship with the people of God for the glory of God, you need to have a heart check and say, why am I doing this? Because God looks at the movement of your mouth and is not impressed. He looks at what you are trying to do to impress him and others. And he says, I am farthest thing from being impressed with you. God looks at our heart and he says, I want your heart. And all throughout the Bible, God continues to say, I reject your worship because I reject you and your phony worship of me. 
I know that your lips are moving, but your heart is far from me and disconnected from me. You see, what is happening here is Abel is, has received great grace and therefore he can give generously. You notice that Abel doesn't even count the cost. He doesn't wait till the end. He doesn't wait till all of his, uh, all of his animals have been born. He doesn't wait until all of his flock has been uh, developed. And he says, I'll, I'll leave this last portion for God. I want to make sure me and my family can eat well. He doesn't count the cost. He goes, the first one, the best one. I'm giving it to God. Why? There's only one reason. Because his heart has already been filled. He says, I have everything I need from God. Therefore, I can give everything away. That is a sign of one who has received the amazing grace of God. But in, in um, opposed to that, it's the picture of Cain, who does what? Why does Cain grow angry? Because Cain gives to God and expects something in return. He expects God to approve him. He ex- expects God to bless him. And God looks at both of, those, both of those hearts of worship, both of those hearts of sacrifice, both of those hearts of giving. And he says, I want the one who gives generously out of their heart because they have received great grace as opposed to the one who expects something in return. You see, the reason Cain burns with anger is because he's standing there expecting for God to go, well done. Instead of Abel says, I have nothing that I need because I have everything from Jesus Christ. One gives their worship and one gives with a spirit of pride. And you see, the reason these two families and these two seeds and these two people are distinguished and it's important to understand that one is received out of grace and because of faith and one is rejected because they are trying to earn God's favor and salvation. It's so important for us to understand Genesis chapter 4 is at the end of the day, there is no such thing as good people and bad people. There are bad people and bad people. There are bad people who run to Jesus as their only hope in life and death. And there are bad people who will forever run away from God thinking they can earn their own salvation and justify themselves until they realize it's too late. Genesis chapter 4 teaches us that there is no such thing as good people and bad people. There are bad people and bad people. Bad people that run to Jesus and bad people who refuse to accept and lean into his grace. Which family do you belong to this morning? The second way that God distinguishes these two people is not only by grace, but it's through obedience. Look at 6 and 7, verse 6 and 7. It says, the Lord God said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If your face, if you do well, you will be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. You see what God does when he sees Cain in his face falling well, falling down, and he sees Cain burning with anger. What does God do? God graciously intervenes in the life of Cain. And he says, heed my word and heed my warning. He basically is saying, Cain, you're about to go down. Sin is crouching at your door. And you see the people of God, one of the things that distinguish the people of God is our ability and our longing and our willingness to listen to the word of God, to respond in obedience to God and his word. And God is coming down into the life of Cain and he's saying, you better watch it, Cain. 
Sin is crouching at your door. I want you to heed my warning. It is there and it is hiding and it is about to take you down. But what happens? We learn two things about sin in this passage. The first, that it is crouching at your door. What amazing language we see here, crouching. The idea of someone crouching, the idea of someone hiding as if they are about to attack, that is what God calls sin, that it hides. And we have to understand that about sin. If we do not understand that about sin, we will always be deceived. But God calls sin as one who is crouching at the door, set to devour, hiding itself, wanting to deceive that it's not really bad, not seen as a threat. So this is the first thing we have to understand about sin, that it crouches at your door and it will always cause you to underestimate the problem and the nature of sin. You see, the grace of God does not give us the freedom to minimize our sin, but the grace of God allows us to be honest about our sin. The grace of God changes us in such a way that we're able to see sin for what it is. And we're able to be honest and authentic and open about what our struggles are and not always running through life minimizing or underestimating the power and nature of sin in our lives. And one of the greatest tragedies that we go into every single day, one of the greatest tragedies and lies that we buy into is that my sin is not that bad and we become blind to it and God not only looks down upon Cain but he looks down upon you this morning and he says brothers and sisters be aware sin is crouching at your door and if you do not wake up it will devour you and it will destroy you I once heard from a a marriage counselor, that without fail, every time they would meet with one of the spouses that was coming into his office to talk about the problems in their marriage, whether it was the husband or the wife, he would begin every session by drawing a circle, and the circle, he would say, is like a pie, and the circle or this pie represents your marriage, and he would look at one of the spouses that was complaining about the other spouse, and he would say, I want you to draw your slice of the pie. I want you to draw your slice of the marriage. What, what, what sin or what problems are you contributing? Well, they said without fail, it was always the smallest slice of the pie. And he says, in addition to that, I could never get that spouse to stay on their slice. Why? Because since Genesis chapter 4, it's always been someone else's problem. My sin is just not that bad. My problems are just not that severe. It's everyone else's problem. And you could translate that illustration into every relationship we have. And it all goes back to Genesis chapter 4. Underestimating our sin and being blind to our problems. It's my spouse's problems and my kids' problems and my parents' problems and my employees' problems and my employers' problems. It's my church's problems. It's, you could go right down the list. It's everyone else's problems except for mine. It's crouching at your door, brothers and sisters, and it's hiding. The other thing that we learn about sin here, that it eventually destroys him. Sin is destructive. It not only hides, but it will eventually destroy. What happens in verse 8? The tragedy of tragedies. 
The sin that Cain underestimated, that he would not be obedient and listen to the word of God, sin eventually destroys him. And in verse 8, we see a man who is absolutely calloused and hardened to the reality of God's word and God's truth in his life. And the audacity of Cain to ignore God and to ignore his warning and to ignore his word leads to one of the greatest tragedies early on in the scriptures. The murdering of his own brother. He can't be talked out of his sin by even God. And it leads him to destroy and to murder his brother. And what does Cain say? The audacity of this response. When Cain says, what have you done? He says, am I my brother's keeper? That is the most flippant, most audacious, shows the callousness and the hardening of Cain's heart. And if we do not wake up, and if we are easily deceived by our own sin in our life, this is exactly how we will respond. By a hard, calloused heart that when we hear God and we hear his word and we hear the truth, we will simply go, who really cares? Until... It's too late. Listen to me. The way of the seed of the serpent might seem attractive. It might seem easier. It might seem convenient. But make no doubt that the way of the seed of the serpent always leads to one thing. And that is complete and utter destruction. The children of God people that belong to the family of God are distinguished by their obedience to God and his word. And that leads us to this. And lastly, they're distinguished by grace, distinguished by obedience. But lastly, the family of God is distinguished by blood. Something very unusual happens at the end of this passage. In verse 9 and 10, God takes on the role of judge. And He goes down and he talks to Cain and he says, what have you done? And God turns into the judge here and he wants to find out. And as I said, Cain flat out denies anything. And he says flippantly, am I my brother's keeper? And Cain basically says, I didn't do it and I don't care who did it. But God says as judge, he says, but I'm sorry to tell you, there's a witness. There's a witness. He says, yeah, there's a witness. Verse 9 tells us that this witness is the blood of Abel. God says to Cain, I beg to differ. You did do it. Because your brother's blood, Abel, is crying out from the ground as a witness. It is crying out for justice. And you see, the reason God simply can't forgive Cain is because there is a blood crying out from the ground for justice. You see, God is holy and we are not. And God simply cannot turn a blind eye to what has been done. Justice must be served. And what God is saying to Cain is, I can't let you off the hook that easily. Because your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. And the reason God can't forgive Cain that easily is the same reason he can't forgive you that easily this morning. Because Abel's blood, it tells us in Hebrews, continues to cry out from the ground. But there is a way. And there's only one way that God could have forgiven Cain. 
and God could forgive you this morning. There needs to be a better blood. You see, remember last week we read in Genesis chapter 3 that God would eventually send a seed. He would send the seed of the woman that would eventually come and do what? Crush the head of the serpent. You see, the reason we long for the seed to come at Advent time is because we have been waiting for centuries. And finally, 2,000 years ago, the people of God saw the fulfillment of the promise that a seed would come, distinguished by grace, distinguished by obedience to his Father, and his name would be Jesus Christ, who would break forth into the world. And that seed, Jesus Emmanuel... His blood would cry out as well. And although Abel's blood cries out for justice, Jesus' blood cries out for what? I fooled you. Justice as well. You see, John tells us that Jesus, the advocate, that if we confess our sins to Jesus, that God is faithful and just to forgive us. But the difference between Abel and Jesus is that Abel's blood cried out for justice and Jesus' blood delivered justice. One said from the ground, this must be made right, and another man's blood said, I will make this right myself. That's why we can read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, that Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. One cries out for justice, and the other one delivers justice. One says, make this right, and another man's blood says, I will make this right. You see, what we celebrate at Advent is the better and the true and the greater Abel coming into this world. That centuries later, after Genesis chapter 4, a better and true Abel would come into the world to make everything right again and to justify us and to make us right before God so that we would not have to go through life defending ourselves or justifying ourselves. And the reason Jesus coming into the world at Christmas is such good news is because you and I, apart from Jesus, will spend our entire existence trying to make ourselves right and trying to justify ourselves and trying to defend ourselves to our own peril and to our own exhaustion. And if we believe this is true, that Jesus makes all of our wrongs right, and Jesus fully justifies us, and Jesus is the better and true able, defends us before a holy God, and Jesus' blood says, on the basis of my blood and on the basis of my righteousness, my sons and daughters, my children, my family are justified and right. Could you imagine what our lives would look like if we actually believed that to be true, that we wouldn't have to go through our lives constantly defending ourselves and constantly trying to make ourselves right. Because we believe there's one who came 2,000 years ago that fully defends and fully justifies and fully makes us right before God. We might actually be enjoyable to be around 
I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. There was a boy who went to a school here in town, friend of our family's, and he was caught in a situation at school that eventually ended up in the principal's office and actually ended up in the courtroom. He was 18 years of age and he was petrified, not knowing he was months away from graduation, not knowing now not only was this a school matter, but it had become a legal matter between his family and another family, between one boy and another boy. And he was actually called to go to court to testify about this incident that he had been involved in at school. And you imagine as an 18-year-old boy, not knowing, never really been in trouble in his life, couldn't sleep the night before, was going through his mind, what would he say to the judge? How would he defend himself? How would he make himself right? And so he walks into the courtroom with his father. And right before the, the judge looks to uh, the, the boy to, to testify and to make an account, he excuses the boy and says, son, I want to talk to your father. So five minutes goes by and 20 minutes goes by and an hour goes by. And eventually the young boy is brought back into the courtroom and the judge looks at him and he says, young man, you're free to go. Case dismissed. And the boy looks at the judge and he says, I haven't even testified. He says, you don't have to. Your father did it for you. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, you should know that feeling that you no longer, because of Jesus, have to plead your case, that because of Jesus Christ, you don't have to plead your argument, that you do not have to justify yourself before the judge, that if you belong to Jesus Christ this morning and you are a part of that family, the family of the seed of the woman, then you can walk out of here this morning knowing that you are fully justified and fully defended and fully made right, not on the basis of anything you've done or anything you bring to God, but on the basis of God coming down in the person of Jesus Christ because his blood cries out this morning on the basis of my death and resurrection, they are fully defended and justified and made right forever. And that is good news for you and for me. So would you come and would you follow the voice Follow the voice of a better Abel who came into this world. The voice of Jesus, the voice that leads to life.